Welcome to the Middle East Lawn Governance Podcast. Middle East Lawn Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today we are lucky to be joined by Jacob Mundy. Jacob is an Associate Professor of Peace and Conflict Studies and Middle Eastern and Islamic Studies at Colgate University. In addition to numerous articles, he has written, co-authored, and edited four books, including his 2018 monograph, Libya. Jacob also recently edited a special issue for Melg, exploring the decade of transition in Libya since the Arab Spring. Jacob, thank you very much for joining us. It's great to be with you. Uh, it's great to have you on, and I've really been looking forward to discussing Libya and the special issue with you, um, given the encouraging news that's been coming out of the country for the past weeks. Uh, and I'm also really keen to, to delve into some of your findings from your interesting and very relevant 2018 book. So maybe we could start by, by looking back at what happened in 2011. Um, the events that unfolded in Libya at that time were a bit different and maybe more complex than elsewhere in the region. So how do you characterize what happened? Was it an uprising or a revolution or a civil war or maybe a mix of all of those? I would support the idea of it being more of a mix of all of those things. If we disaggregated temporally, we would see different um, things emerging at different points. Uh, I do think that there was a legitimate uprising that was being organized. Activists were, you know, in Libya and the diaspora were looking at what was happening in Egypt and Tunisia, you know, from the start and wondering if they could take advantage of the situation. The transformation, I think, of a, a popular uprising to uh, more of almost a, a situation of armed revolt and then civil war happens very quickly uh, in Libya versus, say, um, what happened in Syria necessarily. The regime made it very clear that you know, there would be no occupation of central territory in the capital of Tripoli, and uh, the uprising in the east of the country responded to this by rapidly arming itself. Uh, there were defections from the military, there was you know, raiding of armories and, and things like that. So I think what sets Libya apart is that in the face of government repression, the, the opposition decided that they had no choice but to, to take up arms. And that very quickly set Libya, I think, on the, the path to becoming an a internationalized civil war. Right. And that internationalization, I guess, is another element that sets Libya apart from, from other countries during the Arab uprisings. Um, so could you maybe speak to what drove the, the very quick Western intervention um, and use of R2P in Libya? Was there a real threat to peace and security? Um, I mean, I guess the real question here is, was the situation in Libya so different from other countries in the region um, that were experiencing turmoil to sort of justify um, that intervention? Yeah, critics of the intervention pointed out that the number of persons killed at, at the point at which uh, the United Nations to, sort of authorizes international action was far less than what we had seen in Egypt. So it was sort of premised on these notions of a potential um, massacre, the Ghosts of Bosnia and Rwanda were even invoked very dramatically. 
uh, and the situation was in, in no way comparable. It's sort of, even in the, the most ridiculous instances, you see authors sort of pointing out that uh, Gaddafi had used the term cockroach, and, and so had the genocidaires in, in Rwanda, so therefore <laughs> there was proof of a gen- genocidal intent. So um, what, what made it possible, I don't think, was necessarily facts on the ground. Um, but, you know, one hand, this sort of this, uh, this imagination of what could happen had kind of taken over. And then the, this confluence of things that, um, you know, everyone really looked to the U.S. Uh, administration. There was this idea that not, nothing would happen if the U.S. didn't move. But the U.S. didn't want to move because the Obama administration had you know, come to power on this idea of not unilaterally intervening in countries, especially in the Middle East. Um, Iraq weighed heavily. Uh, but then the, the French got on board with intervention very quickly, um, trying to get European partners. Then there was signals of willingness from Arab states like the United Arab Emirates and others that they were willing to participate. So that created the kind of like aura of an international coalition that the Obama administration could get behind. You know, we know from some reporting that, you know, Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton were kind of key, key in these debates. Uh, Defense Department was actually opposed, but that's the kind of strange confluence that came together. And then, you know, the, the invocation of R2P, I think, is kind of important in the Security Council resolution. But um, what it also demonstrates is that the Security Council can declare any situation a, a threat to international peace and security, and that they would do so in the case of a civil war, to me, is the precedent that I don't think people pay enough attention to. But yeah, it is, it is a strange sort of conglomeration of contingencies that allows this um, this intervention to happen. Interesting. And what sort of impact has um, the intervention in Libya had on R2P? Has it sort of tainted its subsequent use? No, certainly. I mean, there were papers written in scholarly, scholarly journals uh, that were published quite rapidly, even before Gaddafi was was killed, before NATO had ended its um, aerial mission. Um, I guess we should also keep in mind that the, the intervention was actually joint Arab League and NATO. Oh, I, right. think, I think the Arab League's role is often overlooked, even if it was a junior partner. But the there was a widespread celebration, especially among international relations scholars who had been strong advocates of R2P uh, coming out of the experiences in the 1990s and the controversies surrounding the intervention in Kosovo, which was done without UN Security Council blessing. And so the idea that there needed to be some kind of agreed framework to allow for this kind of international action that could use coercive force. Um, Darfur ended up becoming a very sort of um, fraught, failed test case of R2P. And it almost seemed as if it wasn't really going anywhere in the shadow of the global war on terror. And then all of a sudden, Libya materializes as this laboratory for R2P that um, seems to be a success. And then once things fall apart in Libya from 2014 onwards, uh, there's a kind of silence within a lot of the the really pro R2P people. But the intervention itself 
continues to be, um, I've actually lost track of how many collections and monographs have now been written on just this intervention, <laughs> but it's still continues to, you know, be studied and analyzed, whether from the perspective of, um, you know, strategy in the, the new century or from the perspective of R2P. And so fast forwarding a little from this initial intervention to the subsequent need to, to rebuild Libya, um, you note in your book that there were assumptions among the Western powers that Libya's natural wealth, its human capital, um, its infrastructure would allow for the quick stabilization of the country after the fall of the Gaddafi regime, um, and that it would allow the violent forces that were unleashed in the revolution to be democratically contained within the apparatus of a, a modern state led by a technocratic elite. Um, what mitigated against those advantages and, and led to the post-2011 decline in Libya? Yeah, well, the the fracturing of the regime uh, internally because of the, the civil war and the, the uprising, and then externally with the uh, NATO's intervention, uh, created an environment in which there was, one, a, a kind of scramble for control over strategic assets within the country. And that could be the, the capital itself, which was sort of, um, even today to a certain degree, is under what locals often feel is a kind of foreign occupation by outside cities or coalitions or, you know, ideologically driven forces or just, you know, criminal, criminally motivated militias. Um, and so this, this kind of like, you know, scramble for control over state resources and a, a kind of parcelization of state power was uh, the situation in which the, the transitional authorities found themselves not, you know, at the commanding heights of power, but, you know, literally having to try to transition a country that, you know, hadn't seen a you know, constitution in decades, hadn't had Western style elections, and to try to organize all that very quickly. And they, they go through the motions uh, almost successfully in, in 2012 in terms of elections and things of that sort. But kind of lurking in the background is the fact that the, the real power in Libya is, um, first of all, it's very diffuse, um, that there's no clear hegemonic coalition. Um, in the book, the only, the only hegemony I talk about is, is the very idea that Libya should continue to be a nation state. Be, beyond that consensus point, there's, there's not a lot to be found. There are powerful uh, groups like, let's say, the Muslim Brotherhood, which Hala Hueo looks at in her article in the, the special collection that, you know, did try to use the kinds of ambiguities and I don't want to say anarchy, but, you know, the, the chaos of the, the post-revolutionary situation to try to advance their interests. And what happened, I feel, in response is that the losers of the revolution, um, not just necessarily, you know, Gaddafists or people, you know, closely allied to the regime, but anyone who kind of felt that they were being marginalized, they, you know, had to kind of form counter coalitions to fight against what they felt was unfair dispossession, you know, because of uh, direct or indirect associations with the other regime. So that's why in the book I talked about one camp is just kind of revolutionary and trying to really, really install a new 
political order in the country and one being uh, conciliatory, trying to find some common ground between those who had been involved in the, the old regime and the, the new kind of centers of power that emerged. Right. And as this was happening, there was very little Western engagement there. I mean, there was effectively a gap between the initial intervention and then the re-engagement several years later uh, with, the or with the emergence of ISIS in the country. Um, how helpful do you think it would have been to have greater Western security assistance to the transitional authorities or the deployment of a United Nations stabilization force? Could that have prevented the collapse? Yeah, this is the argument where I tend to get a lot of criticism is um, I made the case that something that really would have served Libya quite well would have been a stronger um, international stabilization force, which is almost something that's kind of kind of come back into discussions. And that's, that's because of this problem, which is, I think, the problem that went really kind of unrecognized. But the the radical democratization of the means of coercion in the state, which is essentially that when the, the uprising started, part of this scramble for strategic assets was the, the country's armory. And pretty soon, you know, a large percentage of Libyans have uh, light arms, either, either in the, the trunk of their car for family protection or because they've joined a, a militia. And so in the absence of a hegemonic authority with either the legitimacy or the capacity to engage in a kind of either, you know, a, <laughs> a gentle sort of disarmament campaign or, you know, as we've seen in other state consolidation, you know, even Israel, right, is an interesting example where the other groups just have to be subordinated and put under the the authority of what what the state will be. And so there, there was no actor in Libya who could do that. There were, you know, coalitions, but no coalition could could come together in in such a way. And so with this, you know, proliferation of light arms, you know, being the most in, insidious feature, you know, I had, you know, thought when I was there in 2012 that, you know, unless there, you know, if you could get an international stabilization force, then, you know, that would be the actor who could engage in these activities. Now, whether or not it was feasible, the you know, critics have, have you know, raised that point that, and again, this gets back to an earlier question of how the Libyan intervention by NATO and the Arab League was sold. And one of the ways it was sold was this, you know, the mythology of, of no boots on the ground. But the idea being that there would, there would be no durable, long-term, robust international presence in Libya. And that proviso was as important for the international community, especially the United States, as it was for Libyans themselves who didn't want to be occupied. But, you know, there's, there's a wide spectrum of transitional types of authorities that can exist. You know, and Libya is actually an interesting case if you go back to the late 1940s of, you know, helping a country that had previously been occupied by Italy transition to independent statehood very rapidly in 1951. But Libyans were uh, against uh, occupation, which they, you know, viewed through a post-2003 Iraq lens, and, and rightly so. But I think in, in raising the point about how an international transitional authority could have been that neutral disarmament mechanism, um, What's more important, I think, is less whether it's a realistic policy proposal or was a realistic policy proposal, 
circa late 2011, but the fact that it wasn't even on the table says a lot about, I think, the the misguided mentalities that, that kind of went into both, as we've been talking about here, like, you know, Libyans thinking consolidating the revolution wouldn't be that difficult and international supporters thinking the exact same thing, that that somehow all of the mistakes of Iraq had somehow been avoided in Libya, when in fact many of them were uh, almost repeated verbatim. Right. And so, I mean, would you agree with the sort of um, conclusions of others that Libya was really a, you know, a failure in responsibility to rebuild? Well, that's, I mean, the, the responsibility to protect when it was being, let's say, crafted um, in the late 1990s, uh, you know, with initiative from Kofi Annan and then led by Gareth Evans, and then eventually getting a kind of Security Council blessing. But the repeated feedback they got from the non-North Atlantic world was, what about prevention and post-conflict rebuilding? And R2P was you know, originally framed as this kind of tripod of responsibility to prevent, responsibility to protect, and then responsibility to build. And in Libya, you see, you know, as we've been talking about, like total just abandonment of the, the responsibility to rebuild, not even recognizing that, that there was Okay, on the one hand, you have a state with with pretty advanced infrastructure relative to North African and African states, but the the political infrastructure is something that is entirely absent, that Libyans had for so long operated, you know, in the shadow of a political system they didn't, you know, the majority didn't really (laughs) engage with in any kind of substantive way, right? So Libyans had become very well versed in the arts of evading power, you know, in almost a kind of classic James C. Scott kind of way. And so rebuilding wasn't even talked about, but then also the responsibility to prevent um, and that the NATO powers had really sidelined the African Union when it came to trying to de-escalate the situation in Libya ahead of the, the March intervention by NATO. And so in both cases, it it seems to be without prevention and without rebuilding that the worst fears of the, the, you know, say the broader non-aligned world were basically realized in Libya, that R2P would be used as the new legitimating context for regime change operations around the world. And uh, I think that's partially why R2P as a concept has been, you know, very absent in a lot of, you know, recent debates, whether, you know, it's the the Rohingya or Western China. Right. And and your recent Melg special collection um, really digs into the to the results of the decline after 2011 and the, the failure to rebuild. Um, in your introduction to the collection, you note that it's become common in studies of Libya to invoke Gramsci's discussion of the the liminal moment, um, that moment during which the old regime can no longer be sustained and a a replacement cannot yet be established. Could you provide a bit of a a lay of the land for this protracted interregnum in Libya? Yeah, well, we've seen uh, the rise and fall of uh, several what are framed as transitional 
authorities in Libya and a constitutional writing process that is still <laughs> continuing, you know, now that we're, you know, 10 years past the, the start of the, the revolution. A lot, of, I think the, the prolongation has a lot to do with the, essentially the, we, we, you know, we could call it the second civil war in 2014, Calling the the 2011 conflict a civil war brings its own sort of. I have no problems with it on a technical level, but you know a lot of <laughs> a lot of Libyans and Libyan watchers you know take issue with it, depending on their their sympathies for the the revolutionaries. And it's only until you know recently that we've gotten a sense uh, with the creation of a new government of national unity coming out of a broad based dialogue facilitated by the United Nations that we might have finally stumbled upon a new interim authority that is dedicated to holding elections in December of this year. And hopefully somewhere along the way, a constitution will also be implemented. But um, the, the, you know, with the civil war kind of sustaining um, the interim, right? This allowed a lot of questions to be punted in Libya, and you know, I argued in my book that you know the the government of national accord, the you know the recently replaced interim authority, was more important to the international community insofar as it could authorize counterterror interventions against the Islamic State. And that once the Islamic State had been more or less defeated in Libya through a coalition of, you know, mainly U.S. Uh, military power and um, Libyan boots on the ground, that the the urgency to solve the problem in Libya kind of disappeared, and then a new phase of the civil war emerged with the rise of Khalifa Haftar and his bid to become the. Um, to basically subject all of Libya under his military authority, uh, which was defeated by a, a Turkish intervention. Uh, and so now that, that Turkish intervention created the space for this new interim authority to be created with UN assistance. But we now have a situation where there's an extensive amount of international presence on the ground, and we don't know if it will retreat. Um, you know, Turkey is now kind of the guarantor of the governments uh, in Tripoli. Russian mercenaries are in Libya, but you know, not officially in any capacity. Both sides have recruited mercenaries from the Syrian conflict as well as from Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and so the, the state of play right now is one in which there's progress in terms of creating a unified interim authority, but um, one in which the country is incredibly saturated with foreign um, military presences. And um, my one sort of where, I mean, this might be a strange <laughs> sort of suggestion that there's a ray of hope is I think I think Libyans are just generally tired of the fighting, um, and that, as we see in a lot of civil war situations, that um, an exhaustion point 
is often reached, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you'll get to a, a reconciliation point. So when I initially conceived of this issue with Janine Clark, we had um, been talking about, well, what, what if Libya's interim becomes the, the new reality? You know, and that the you know, so that's sort of the idea of this um, when transitions become the status quo, and that that will be sort of the the next thing to look at is not just uh, so. For example, Imad Badi and his contribution is looking a lot at continuities and discontinuities between the old regime and what's emerged after 2011. Um, and I think the next phase will be to look at you know when there's supposedly peace in Libya. Uh, what that will look like in relationship to the, this very long transition, quote unquote, that we've been dealing with, you know, not unlike sort of, you know, analysis of Lebanon coming out of its civil war. Yeah, I suppose there are limits on the extent to which we can consider a situation liminal before it just becomes the status quo. Uh, and I think that's something that really comes out very clearly in your special collection. Um, but the collection was, was also written uh, a few months ago, um, before some of the positive news started to come out of Libya. So it would be really interesting to get um, your readout on the current lay of the land and what the new national unity government actually means for Libya and its, uh, its future. Yeah, I mean, the country has taken a fairly dramatic uh, 180 turn from you know, what we thought might happen a year ago. Um, Haftar had assembled quite a powerful coalition, was backed by the Emirates and Russia and Egypt, had more or less laid claim to, to most of the country through, through this kind of coalition building, not, not through what might be considered direct control, but you know militias or um, ethnic groups or tribal alliances kind of saying, okay, we'll, we'll join with you mainly for I think for a lot of places just because there was an idea that here's someone who can bring security and stability. Then in April or spring 2019 there was a, an assault on Tripoli began by Haftar and that lasted for a year and during that period it was a big question well you know is Haftar going to storm uh, the capital and then eventually at some point the the old transitional authority asked for Turkish intervention, received it, and Haftar was driven back to sort of his strongholds in the south of the country and the, the east of the country. And now there's kind of almost an armistice line at Sirt, like right in the middle of the country where Russian mercenaries are dug in and where there's, you know, if, if there was going to be a flashpoint, that would be it. And so the, the, a lot of observers were sort of thinking, well, okay, so... Are we now going to have a situation where we are back to a kind of, there will be a, an Eastern Libya and a Western Libya and never the twain shall meet. And then the UN began a, a dialogue process that much to many people's surprise led to a government of national unity um, that seems to have been more or less uh, embraced by all of the the key stakeholders, there's a lot of questions over Haftar at this point. But and and so this government of national unity is is pushing ahead with a lot of different initiatives. 
in terms of oil, there, uh, there are still labor issues with oil, whether it's workers at different extraction, circulation, or refining points, or the guards who are tasked to look over those. Uh, and so that can create sort of blockages in terms of oil flowing. And depressed global prices don't work in Libya's favor. But in general, you know, that being a key um, source of revenue for the government is, is starting to become more stable and predictable. There's, you know, an increasing return of the international presence because Tripoli is no longer under siege. Those are, there's still a kind of militia problem in the capital. And so it, it is quite surprising how quickly this new, this new version of the, <laughs> the transitional reality has emerged. And everyone kind of hopes that maybe this is the, this is the, the final off-ramp into uh, a sustainable political horizon. But uh, again, it's not as if the country is, you know, going back to the original problems we talked about, is, it's not as if the, the, the radical democratization of the means of coercion has not been addressed in the country. It's still, it's still a problem and it's still out there. And worse still is the, the presence of outside actors in the country who, though officially committed to withdrawing, have not taken any apparent you know, steps to actually fulfill those requests from the United Nations. Um, and with those caveats in mind, um, how optimistic are you that the, the unity government will, will be able to make progress towards the election in December? Libya, Libya can be quite surprising. Um, I remember in the elections in 2012 that there was a huge international presence and one of the hotel I was at was the, on the cheaper end, so it had a lot of the international photojournalists were staying there as well. And, and I got the distinct impression everyone was there to, to see violence and, and conflict and to see the elections not work. And they, uh, they worked out, they worked out um, quite well. There was very little uh, problems with the elections, very little electoral violence, and it almost became a kind of non-story that, that Libya had worked worked well. And so I, I think with that in mind, I always want to hold out, you know, <laughs> I don't mean to constantly invoke Gramsci, right? Um, but uh, optimism, the will, pessimism of the intellect, and I hope my intellectual pessimism doesn't lead me to always assume that, you know, that something good can, can come out of what's happening in Libya. But the, the question really will be whether Libya can, can kind of have its, its sovereignty back because it's been such a plaything of larger sort of geopolitical struggles, you know, whether it was sort of, yeah, at one level, the kind of struggles over the, the future of the, the Muslim Brotherhood or reassertions of uh, Russia's role in the Middle East, uh, as well as Russian interest in reviving arms contracts that it had with the with the previous regime things things of that sort you know um can libya regain its sovereignty uh well i think is the the big question in the the near and long-term future well that's probably a good question for us to leave it on today um so jacob thank you so much for coming on today it's really been a pleasure to speak with you about libya yeah thank you so much it was a great conversation 
No, great. And, and thank you to everyone who listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast.